is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. What's parlez-vous in my Francais? I'm Robert Evans. This is Behind the Bastards. Well, it's Behind the Insurrections. It's both. It's like... It's like a, it's like bourbon, right? Bourbon is whiskey, but but all whiskey is not bourbon. Behind the Insurrections is Behind the Bastards, but all Behind the Bastards episodes aren't Behind the Insurrections episodes. So I dig that. I, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's actually whatever, that's a great you say, analogy. Mm-hmm. And then you when throw it, in the scotch thing and then you're like, wait, isn't. No, got yeah. it. I, I try to compare as many things to bourbon as I can. Speaking of bourbon. Not speaking of bourbon, speaking of artists, uh, my guest today, as with the previous, what, four episodes we've done on this, uh, is yeah. Jason Petty, a.k.a. Prop. What's up? Let the lick read. Bourbon and night for mm-hmm. breakfast for dinner. Prop. How do yes. you feel about France? Uh, wow. Um, mm-hmm. I feel carbs i just think carbs, butter yeah. and bread they do love that um, dude i love french food french food's delightful it's yeah i think i think harlem renaissance mm-hmm. that's pretty cool you know my patron saint is is uh james baldwin so his time oh, wow. out there yeah uh but besides that i also think y'all don't like americans <laughs> yeah, which is hard to fault them for. What I no. what I don't like the French for is is appropriating Belgian 
uh, French fries or Belgian fries and calling that them French sucks fries. that they call them French. Also, I think that they have a habit of having superfluous letters in they words. do have too many, way too like at least a third of the letters in any French word are unnecessary. This is, yeah, yeah, funny problem. Yeah, we're taking true. France to task today, but we're not talking about how they use okay. too many letters. That okay. that'll be a six parter we do at some point today. We are Behind talking about French fascism. Um, right. Yeah, uh, because the French actually have a long history of fascism, although there's a weird number of French scholars who argue that uh, France is uniquely immune to fascism. It's not. And today we're talking about (laughs) the day that fascists almost took over the French government, February 6th, 1934. Now, all of the Mm. stories we've shared so far in this series have borne some similarities to what happened in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2020, and the events that led up to it. But what happened in France on February 6th, 1934, is by far the most direct comparison to what happened in the U.S. Capitol on the 6th. I knew nothing about this before I started this series, but it's fascinating. It's It's fucking wild. Yeah, well, it failed, but also it is just the same damn thing, basically. You know what's crazy um, is how much the 30s must have sucked. Uh, the trash decade. A lot of this stuff happened in the 30s, man. Mm-hmm. It sucked as much as, I'm going to guess, the 2020s are going to yeah, suck. Yeah, <laughs> like, a sucky decade. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. It's great how the same thing is happening again exactly a century later, pretty much. Yeah. Um, So the story starts, our story today starts in many ways with something that happened in the late 1800s. Prop, have you ever heard of the Dreyfus Affair? No. Oh, this is a very important. I I did, when I was, before I dropped out of college, the the only thing I ever was able to focus on for more than a semester as a major was um was holocaust studies right okay. i wanted to when i the the only degree i ever wanted was a degree in like holocaust scholarship mm-hmm. and every class on anti-semitism and the history of the holocaust is going to start or at least be front-loaded with the story of the Dreyfus Affair. And most Americans okay. don't know about this, but it's very famous in France, and it's where the French far-right really comes out of. In 1884, a French army captain named Alfred Dreyfus was accused of handing secret documents to the Imperial German military. Now, this was a little over a decade since the Austro, uh, the, the Franco-Prussian War, which is where France lost a bunch of territory to what became Germany. Um, I know that one. So there's okay. a lot of, like, panic over the Germans, right? yeah. So suddenly it comes out that like someone has been handing documents over to the German military. There's a spy in the French military and everybody focuses on Alfred Dreyfus. He's the immediate suspected culprit because he's Jewish, you know, like, (laughs) okay, this is starting to sound a little familiar now. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, this is this is a pretty famous moment. Um, Yeah. I feel like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you and celebrity names where I'm like, I think I know this. Immediately, the story becomes not, you know, there's a traitor in the French military, but there's a treacherous Jew giving our military secrets to the Germans, right? Yeah. Um, Now, as I'm sure most of you have guessed, just because this is the show that it is, Dreyfus was innocent. The trial against him was racially motivated and flawed from the get-go. And I found a good write-up on the trial from the open-source educational website E-International Relations, which highlights just how fucked things were from the jump. Quote, 
On the morning of Monday the 15th of October 1894, Captain Alfred Dreyfus was summoned to present himself at the French Ministry of War. The commander, Paddy de Clam, along with three other inspectors, welcomed Dreyfus and proceeded in asking him to write a peculiar letter dictated by Paddy de Clam. This, this letter contains sentences from the infamous Bordereau, which was a letter written by a French spy found in the dustbin of the German military attaché in Paris. The French Ministry of War was searching for the spy and were testing various officers that could be suspected of treason. As hmm. Dreyfus wrote the letter, he shivered, and the three men scrutinizing his every move noticed his trembling, thus deeming it as a sign of culpability. Oh my he is God. cold, he shivers, an incontestable sign of his culpability. Oh they my wrote. God. <laughs> yeah, he shivered, he's guilty. Hey, he cold, he guilty. You see that man? Uh, wow. One, one constant throughout history is people whose job it is to determine whether or not folks are guilty of a crime are always bad at that job. It's um, <laughs> not possible. Yes. Yeah. Dreyfus was immediately arrested for high treason and deported to the prison of, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, he was sent to prison. On December 19th, he was court-martialed in front of a set of anti-Semitic juries who judged him guilty and sentenced him to a degradation and life sentence on the Devil's Isle in French Guyana. Sheesh. So, pretty pretty much, you know, a show trial, right? Yeah. That man, the, the, the anti-Semitism, man, all the way back yeah. From there all the way to they build in lasers to shoot from space. They build in lasers to shoot from space. And this That's is a this real is theory. Key because we'll talk about this later. France did not have much of a history of anti-Semitism before okay. this. Not nearly as much as a lot of other European countries. So about yeah. two years after Dreyfus is convicted, evidence comes out that a completely different non-Jewish French officer had been the spy. And this is good evidence. The guilty man, though, was immediately acquitted by a military court because Dreyfus was Jewish and thus must be the guilty party. And Dreyfus was actually, when the guy who was guilty was acquitted, they sentenced Dreyfus for even more crimes that he hadn't committed in the same trial. Oh, my trial. God. <laughs> Oh, my God. It's really bad. <laughs> oh, my God. Anybody watch that Ivan the Terrible docuseries on Netflix about the guy that was accused of being the the uh, Nazi Oh, guard? yeah, I watched that. Yeah, yeah I watched that. The two trials. Yeah. Oh, Robert, it's up your alley. It is, dude. Dude, so, yeah. They're like, that's him. I, I'll never forget his face. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, it's not. Yeah. No, People are bad at memor remembering things, Especially which is a real problem, trauma. like eyewitness accounts and stuff. But there's yeah. not even that in this. This is just racism that Dreyfus just, is being convicted over. Like, it's not even someone thinks they see him doing something. Um, it's just like, well, he's a Jew and he's in the army. So he's got to be the guy passing secrets to the Germans. God, dog, um, man. Now, obviously, not all what, French man, people you felt the, this way. Oh, sorry. What's that problem? I was going to say, man, I... This is going to be a very racist statement, but I mean it as a joke, which is even I shouldn't have even prefaced it. But I just still think that like, dang, man, because I still go when I look at like European Jews, I'm just like, but y'all white people. And I just and it's and it's but, so funny to yeah. me because I'm like, damn, y'all got the short end of the stick. You got the worst lottery ever as a white dude that you don't even get to count as a white dude. You have to, I think, accept that in this period of time in Europe, Jewish people aren't white. They are excluded from the benefits of whiteness in the way that like in the 18, late 1800s, Italians and Irish were in the United States, yeah, right? Like just it's so, a process of becoming white for a lot of these groups. Yeah, it's so bizarre. I know in the early like, uh, this is the longest script you ever written, so I shouldn't be adding. But like, <laughs> uh, I, I, I know that like, you know, stories of when when America was founded, you know, only white people could own land. So you had like 
Japanese immigrant standing in front of the Congress being like, nah, we white too. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And just this argument that like, I am a part of that. It, dog, I just can't imagine as someone who's, there is no way I could stand in front of any court and convince somebody I'm a white dude. You know yeah. what I'm saying? That like the idea, one, that that's possible. And two, that like you actually are a white dude. Yeah. And, and it's, nobody's calling you a white dude. You know what I'm saying? Like that's at least the the European Jew. Obviously, yeah. Ethiopian Jewish people are clearly not white dudes. You know? Yeah. And I mean, yeah. and it's, it's a factor of non-whiteness is a scale, right? Like everyone yeah. who is considered non-white isn't considered the same. Yes. Um there but it it's it's a it's a scale. And in, and yeah, in this yeah, period yeah. of time in a lot of Europe and really not in in France this had not been the case, but in a lot of Europe Jewish people are not really considered like there had been there there had been within living memory at this point severe restrictions on whether or not Jewish people could own property in parts of Europe. Um yeah. it had not been legal like up to the First World War almost in like Germany for Jewish people to be officers in the military. Like there were very yeah. strong restrictions around it. So it, it's really yeah. You, it, it's hard to almost get your head around um, because yeah, of how think, significant it is in this period. Yeah, that's the point I'm trying to make is yeah. like, I still can't, I, obviously you can't, you can't pull a, you know, a critical race theorist based on a society yeah. in the in the 21st century. You can't yank that back to the 17th and think it's going to be the same. Yeah. But at the same time, it's still hard to like wrap my mind around the fact that they're like, but not him. And I'm like, yeah. how do you know? You know what I'm saying? It's um, yeah. I mean, it's it's the whole the, the the whole process of a lot of, you know, it, it it's it's the same way as how most of the kind of colonial procedures that the British carried out in Africa in order to maintain yeah. dominance and split up different tribal groups and keep them fighting each other so that they could dominate and exploit them, they they beta tested that in Ireland with 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 what were effectively tribes yeah. and, and group tribal groups of Irish people like that that yeah. uh, th- there are people scholars who will argue that the Irish were the first people to be excluded from whiteness when they were when the, the idea of whiteness was being invented before the wow. slave trade yeah. even really existed because yeah. like it was they're an early colonized people it's so it's a uh, like so I said, we'll do a history <laughs> a series about this at some the point history of whiteness yeah, there's a couple of really good books, including yeah. uh, one titled "The Invention of the White Race." That's yeah, yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. So yeah, anyway, everything the Dreyfus, you know, getting tried and then getting reconvicted when this new info comes up, it creates a massive culture war in France. Uh, and two groups kind of rise up around this. There's the anti-Dreyfusards, who are confusingly the ones who think Dreyfus is innocent. Uh, okay. Y- 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 yeah. Uh, and then there's the Dreyfusards who are raging anti-Semites. Um, like the Dreyfusards think that that uh, Dreyfus is guilty. The anti-Dreyfusards think that he's. Oh yeah, innocent. okay. So the yeah, antis it's, are it's, for it's, him. It's the opposite of how you'd think yeah. it would be. It's opposite day. Okay, <laughs> yeah. got it. So Dreyfus is pardoned by the French president and released in 1903. Eventually, just like and and in fairness to France, the weight of kind of cultural opinion is that Dreyfus is guilty. People come uh, around on this and realize okay. that they've done him dirty. Um, so he's released in 1903. And in 1906, a French court formally recognizes his innocence. Now, the actual spy and the racist officers who conspired against Dreyfus were never punished. And one of the saddest of things not. about the story is how kind of incomprehensibly loyal to the state Alfred Dreyfus is. Because after he gets out of years of being in prison as a spy, he rejoins the French army and fights what? in World War One. 
one. Yeah. What? He retires as a lieutenant colonel and dies in 1935. He goes right back into the military. Yo, I was team Dreyfus until the end, boy. <laughs> like, yo, time it's, out, bro. It is yeah. hard to get your head around yes. These that, people don't love you, fam. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. some, I mean, in fairness to him, a lot of folks, there was a huge culture war in his oh, defense okay. in a lot of cases. Oh, a lot okay. of people well, being like, this is wrong. Okay. Um, so all things considered, for a what is effectively like a, a racist uh, 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 attack on a Jewish man at multiple levels of the military, the Dreyfus affair works out about as well as you can expect for Dreyfus, because he is he yeah. is vindicated in the end. But because of how much, because of what kind of like uh, evolves in France around believing Dreyfus is guilty and starting to believe that Jewish people are kind of inherently unloyal to the state, uh, supercharges the radical right in France. And it lays the foundations for French sympathy for the Nazis and a hatred of Jewish people that would claim tens of thousands of lives in World War II. And I'm going to quote from that write-up in the international relations again. Quote, before the affair, France had been one of the least anti-Semitic countries in Europe. It, in fact, had been the country where the most Jews had sought political asylum during the pogroms that took place in Russia during the 1880s. Russian Jews escaped the massacres ordered by the Tsar and flee towards the rest, predominantly France. Another event attesting to France's non-anti-Semitic past was that there was no French delegation at any of the annual congresses of anti-Semitism that took place in Dresden. Yes, there used to be yearly congresses wait. based on anti-Semitism in <laughs> yeah, Dresden like, that a bunch of European countries would send delegates to to talk about the dangers. Of, you, the the amount of anti-Semitism, like the Holocaust isn't a factor of the Nazis. The Holocaust is a factor of centuries of most yeah. of European Christendom being like the Jews are dangerous. Like that's where oh it comes God. from. Yeah, um, just a slow-moving train mm -hmm. that ended yeah. exactly where, logically, it would end. Yeah, it was the result Damn. of, for hundreds of years, lots of prominent people being like, we should murder these folks. And yeah. then they did, you know? Yeah. It's the least surprising thing in the world if you read anything about European history. It's crazy. Um, so, yeah, in, but in France, though... Um, that, that that's not really the case as much. Obviously, there's anti-Semitism in France, as the Dreyfus Affair shows, mm -hmm. but it's not nearly what it was. It was one of the best places in Europe to be Jewish. And there were, as Dreyfus proves, a lot of very loyal to France Jewish people. Okay. Um, so anti-Semitism really starts to grow into a serious force in France as a result of the Dreyfus Affair. The Dreyfus Affair also leads to an explosion in the radical press. For the first time in French history, left and right start launching a series of newspapers and magazines aimed at taking different sides in a violent culture war. At the start, anti-Dreyfusard press outnumbered the Dreyfusard press by about 10 to 1 in terms of readership. So the guys who think Dreyfus is innocent, that's the majority okay. of the press at the beginning. But oh. that doesn't doesn't stop the um the dry the the Dreyfusard press, which are the ones who don't like Dreyfus, from publishing uh -huh. a constant stream of ever more lurid lies about a Jewish conspiracy to undermine the military. Now, some will argue that the whole reason the Dreyfus affair became a thing was because the press flocked to it, and that it might have disappeared um, if they hadn't written so much about it. Scholar Jean-Denis Bredin wrote, The press became the power of opinion. It amplified the political movements without creating them. For the first time, the press disposed of a powerful influence on French politics, dramatizing, supporting, or denouncing the authorities. 
Now, this is very familiar to everybody listening right now. It's the same thing that yeah. happened with like QAnon, right? Yeah. This radical press. The the and, and when we talk about radical press in this period, the people like mimeographing or whatever their own like little newsletters and stuff. It's the same as like memes and shit on Twitter and QAnon. Yeah, yeah. It's like eight chan. That's what's happening here. It's still yeah. Right? It's still just dank memes. Okay. And, and it's it's by the way, this basic process is the same thing that radicalizes Hitler when he's uh, when he's like homeless living in Vienna. He starts picking up all of these crudely copied and written. Uh, anti-Semitic tracts that were passed out in mass on the street. That's what convinces him in a lot of ways about the danger of the Jewish menace. It's a, a lot okay. of the same shit you see on 8chan. It's yeah. just now what happens online, then it was like sh- like zines you would pass out, basically. Yeah. I wonder if there's like some sort of psychological study or something that like lays out what that does to you mentally to see something that's like feels clandestine if you will because mm-hmm. it's like these like mimeograph things like the quality is terrible so it's so does something in you feel like oh this is a secret that's why it's not all polished and nice it's like yeah does there so i wonder if there's something to that where it's like i'm i'm in i'm in on something i know there's psychology about that where you feel like you're in on something everybody else isn't it it hits a certain part of your brain, it, it's, you know what it's, i'm saying but i wonder if there's something to do with like how sucky the quality of like yes. those things are this yeah. is the same, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. There's this, one of the guys behind the Lincoln Project is a fellow named Rick Wilson, who is what? like, I think, a, objectively a bad person, yeah. um, but has been historically pretty good at creating certain types of propaganda. He was the guy behind the um, the Reverend Wright campaign ads during Obama's election. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he's that guy. And I interviewed him in 2016 talking about kind of his opinion on Hillary Clinton's campaign ads versus Donald Trump's. Because the the first Trump campaign ads really felt like something some teenager had cobbled together on their laptop. And Hillary's ads were like traditional campaign ads. And everyone was, a a lot of liberals were making fun of Trump's ads, but they were getting this incredible traction. And the thing he told me was essentially like, the the really polished, slick campaign ads don't work nearly as well as the ones that look like they came out of somebody's basement, because that feels real to people. Right. Like it's it feels crazy. more authentic. And I, yeah. you know, I, like, again, he's a very bad person. Um, yeah. He's not <laughs> bad at making propaganda. And I, right. I think about yeah. what he told me a lot. Um, yeah. And that's, I think, what we, kind of what you, you're seeing here. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. So the Dreyfus affair would prove and the, the radical press that kind of comes out of the Dreyfus affair would prove yeah. to be the seed of a new militant right wing in France. One that came with its own stabbed in the back myth, right? We talk about how the stabbed in yeah. the back myth in Germany was crucial. Now mm. the right in France is like, we lost the Franco Prussian war because the Jews, you know? Um, God damn it. And it's, it's worth noting that when the Nazis took over France, they actually had a problem, had serious problems logistically because of how many French people were turning in their Jewish neighbors. They couldn't deal with the sheer number of Jewish people Whoa. being turned into them. Yeah. It was way more normal to give up your Jewish neighbors to the Nazis than it was to hide them in a, a lot of Europe, but in France yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know like I have – we talked about so many times, like the, the parallels in the, in like Syria and Iraq and Iran, like, and I have, you know, some of my homies out there, like, we're trying to explain like how a caliphate kind of grows. And this is a lot of the, the, the thing too. It's like this, these like heavily armed dudes pull up to the house and are like, are you a Christian? And you're like, uh, nah, but they are, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, 
you know, or you down for the caliphate, you down with us. Yeah. And it's like, uh, well, they, they the ones down there said, it's just like, I just don't want you to drag my daughter out of my house. So mm-hmm. yeah, them, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You just turn it down to dude down the street. You know what I'm saying? I don't know, but they are, you know? And, and it's like a lot of people that signed up didn't really sign up. They just, you know what I'm saying? It's just, I just don't want you to drag my grandma out of the street. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a factor in it. There's a, this is complicated when we talk about the the Holocaust, that's a complicated factor because a lot of people would claim in their defense later, like after, during like the Nuremberg trial time, that they had been forced to carry, and these are mainly German soldiers, they had been forced to carry out acts of genocide. And a significant amount of scholarship shows that like, it's actually was unheard of for German soldiers to be punished for not engaging in acts of genocide. Uh Um, it was it was a lot of a lot of it was just it was a mix of like peer pressure and like legitimate radicalization. But that's a whole yeah. the whole fucking Holocaust thing. is a whole nother yeah, story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but this oh, is yeah, a part of the story of the Holocaust, though. This is yeah. why part of why the 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 French people in who are taken by the Nazis are so willing to turn in Jewish neighbors, you know? Yeah. Um, and none of this sh- should be seen as like kind of uh, uh, ignoring the fact that a lot of French people hid and protected their Jewish yeah, neighbors. Totally. It actually makes them much more heroic. But that was not the norm, you know? Okay. Um, so again, the Dreyfus Affair gives birth to the right wing in France. Um, and it it it's it's like it, it leads to this alternative media ecosystem that starts spreading propaganda at a at a huge rate. Mm-hmm. Um, now France, obviously, World War One comes around, and France is one of the co co belligerents in that war, and they suffered you know terribly as a result. Yeah. About one point three million French soldiers were killed, and another million were left permanently disabled, which makes which means that like in that war, France lost as many soldiers dead as the U.S. has lost um, more than the U.S. has lost in all of its wars put together. Um, Damn. Yeah, it's bad. Um, yeah. yeah, 73% of French soldiers who mobilized for World War I were either killed or wounded. Um, and this does not just include white Frenchmen. This includes a huge number of colonial troops who were brought yeah. onto the continent by the French government to make up for the fact that after a while, German machine guns had them running low on white dudes, you know? Um, yeah. And one of the stories that's not talked about enough in World War One is how many people from India, people from chunks of Africa, from like all over the world, from the Middle East, were brought in to die on the Western Front because like we own these places and we can make yeah. them, you know? Yeah, um, beauty of colonialism. You can just yep. pull bodies from anywhere. Pull them all from wherever. Yeah. Now, the days and months after World War I's close brought a wave of revolutions and insurrections across Europe. Uh, in Germany and Russia, as we've talked about, all these trauma-mad young veterans were major instigators of unrest in what one scholar called the shatter zones of the empires that died as the war's conclusion, um, which I think is a neat term. Yeah. Now, you know, all these paramilitary organizations start becoming more common. And France has spared the worst of this, in part because, you know, they have their stab in the back from the War of 1870, but then uh-huh. they win World War One, which does kind of mean it reduces the, the avenues for radicalization, right? People yeah. aren't as angry because the war was terrible, but they did win, you know? Yeah. It's not as bad as it is in Germany or, you know, Italy won too, but they kind of got screwed in the victory, you know. Yeah. So, so there, there's a lot more resentment in those countries. Um, mm. France does have some unrest, though. There's waves of strikes in early 1919, but these didn't really disrupt the status quo. They did, however, terrify French conservatives. This was largely because those conservatives weren't seeing the reality of the strikes themselves, but were instead looking at the violence convulsing Russia as a result of its recent revolution and being like, that's what these people want to bring here, you know? Yeah. So everybody's this, scared of whatever hell happened to Russia. 
Everybody is. Yeah, it's a huge yeah. factor here, you know? Yeah. And you have to acknowledge that, like, we talk a lot about how the, the people on the left are terrified about what they see happening in France and Germany. People on the right are terrified about what they see happening in Russia. And a lot of, yeah. again, nine million people die in that war. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. You have the Holodomor, which is five million Ukrainians being starved as a result of some very fucked up policies. So, like, yeah. they're not like when people are terrified as a result of what's happening in Russia. It's not like, you know, today people being scared of cultural Marxism because, yeah. you know, a, a, someone wants to talk about slavery, you know? Like, yeah, 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 basically. Yeah, this they is have, very different. That's a legitimate fear. Yeah, yeah there's, they like, have a leg to stand on, yeah, right? Yeah, now, again, yeah, they yeah, yeah. usually still take it to like, well, now we, we have to just do fascism, which is... Yeah, it's like, well, bro, yeah. But but it's not quite the same. Yeah. Um, so the fear of French conservatives were exacerbated by a pattern of progressive social changes that came in the war's wake. The sheer number of men killed and rendered unable to work had to bring more women into the workplace, right? You have a bunch of men who can't take yeah. part in capitalism anymore so you got to bring in women this brings in expansions in women's rights and a broadening of what was considered acceptable behavior for hmm. the first time large numbers of french women were both sexually and financially independent of men and obviously this terrifies conservatives oh, of course right? yeah. yeah can't have women making decisions i mean what's wrong with you yeah they might they might decide not to make more french babies um, yeah which is actually exactly where this leads because something called the birth rate movement pops up in this period of time these guys are scared at declining rates of french birth now they'd started whining in 1871 when prussia beat france in that war because the french right before they started blaming jewish people blamed the fact that french people women weren't having enough babies like that's the oh, thing God. like the right loses a war and they're like they have to find a scapegoat so first <laughs> it's the women you're not making enough babies for us to yeah. send into german guns yeah yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which is obviously like ridiculous. I'll, I'll, but, I'll spoil know. an episode that we're going to drop soon. The reason France loses that war is because they have brass cannons that are basically Napoleonic artillery, and the uh -huh. Germans have modern steel cannons, yeah, and that's yeah, why yeah. France loses in eighteen seventy one. That's the the real reason. It has nothing to do with birth rate. Um, yeah, how would it? I mean, yeah, I'm like, I'm even trying to follow your logic. Like, what yeah, there's the not that many Germans. <laughs> yeah, it's not that many of them. What this toddler gonna do? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does say something about the right wing that they're like, if we'd had more boys to send into their guns, we would have won. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, and then, of course, like after they, you know, after a, a decade or so of blaming women, they start blaming Jewish people. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the the kind of the, the birth rate movement got even more like uh, gained more traction after World War One, because at this point, a lot of French dudes had died. So they had a little bit more of a leg to stand on. Like, we need oh, to have man. more babies because look at how many of our boys got killed yeah, running that's, into that's guns. A better, that's a better answer. <laughs> yeah. thing, I'm just like, man, I wish these dudes like. When I'm hearing them, just the stab in the back thing, and then the, we had no mm -hmm. birth rate. I just wish these kids had like little league baseball at some point to just mm -hmm. like teach you how to take a loss, man. Just mm -hmm. take the loss, bro. You lost. You know, none of them. That's the fucking thing, and it's the same fucking thing for like the the Hindenburg and Ludendorff in Germany, where it's like, well, we can't accept that we fucked up, right? Yeah. it has to be. It has to be someone else's fault that we no. lost this war. Yeah. Just take the L, bro. Like mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, hey, you had a bad day. You mm -hmm. know, you just, hey, buck up, champ. Like you just, you took the, you lost. All right. Take yeah. the L. Everybody takes L's. Yeah. It's like the fact, it's like, it's like the American right wing blaming our, the fact that we lost Vietnam on like teenagers protesting. It's like, no, yeah. dude, 
Like the yeah. fucking Vietnamese kicked your ass. They were we better lost, at it than you. We lost. <laughs> we just They're lost. Better dude. At this like this is you. what happens. Yeah. Sometimes you lose. Yeah. yeah. Usually you lose when you do stupid shit. You should <laughs> like invade Vietnam. Anyway. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Or invade Afghanistan. <laughs> should have been over there anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. Obviously, a bunch of members of the birth rate movement get elected to government. They push legislation to encourage childbirth, yada, yada. In 1920, a conservative government is elected and immediately sets to pushing back against what they saw as a rising and sinister communist left. They were opposed by the labor government, which had been swelled by the war's need for heavy industry. During the first six months of conservative power, a series of strikes convulsed both French industry and public services. Still, the start of the 20s was a good time to be a French conservative. The stain of defeat in 1871 had been wiped out by victory over Germany. The new right-wing government was seen as being largely composed of heroic veterans, even though this wasn't really true. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that, like, these guys are all heroes. They're not normal crooked politicians, right? They're they're men of the trench generation. They could be trusted to make hard decisions to make France great again. Okay. So – First on the right wing's agenda was, of course, sticking it to the Germans. This defeat, yeah, the defeated nation owed a lot of money to France in reparations. Um, And these were seen not only as spoils of war, but were necessary to revive the French economy because the French had gone badly into debt to the United States in order to continue fighting the war. So they need German reparations to pay off the U.S. Um, I I, I, I need my money because I owe some money. Yeah, I need my money because, yeah. Yeah. So when the Germans begged that they couldn't afford to, like, feed their people and pay reparations, the French right wing assumed that they were lying. And this newly formed network of right wing newspapers and magazines starts spreading another conspiracy theory. This one is that Germany actually hadn't been all that badly hurt in World War One. They just faked a surrender so that they could rebuild their military and sneak attack Germany. All of their complaints about economic collapse and inflation and starvation were lies meant to lull the French into a false sense of security (laughs) which yeah is not the case so the germans stopped paying reparations because they were literally on the verge of societal collapse and the french government sends in troops to occupy germany's industrial heartland and of course a big one of the things that happens this period is a lot of the troops they send over are like black people from their colonial possessions which really jump starts a lot of racism in germany um because like you know nobody ever likes the occupying soldiers yeah Um, nobody yeah nobody wants the messenger yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, obviously, that's the one time I feel like in this age or in this era of history where I feel like I have a little more mercy for Germany when they're just like, dog, we, man. look, man, we, we ain't got it, dog. Like, we just, I ain't got it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's your fault. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's your fault, but you can't squeeze water out of a turnip, fam. Yeah, like, I mean, they're fucking, you know, like, the thing that they're guilty of in World War One in that era and the reason that, like, France and Germany come down so hard on them is like they're primarily guilty of wanting to do what France and Germany had been doing for two two or three centuries. You know, yeah. they wanted an empire. Yeah. And they're like, well, everyone else gets to do it. Why don't we get to do it? Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's bad to want an empire, obviously, yeah, with the, Ger- the Germans do some really messed up stuff in Namibia, carry out a genocide themselves. Like, but also up to World War One and including World War One, if you're looking at like the number of crimes against humanity committed by Germany versus France or England. Not even close. Not Not even even fucking close. Not even close, yeah. In 1924, the French conservatives get their asses handed to them in a landslide election. And the victors in this election are an alliance between socialists and radicals. Now, 
again, because everything in France is backward, the socialists were the furthest electorally relevant left-wing party. So the socialists are like as far left, like the Bernie Sanders, as far left uh, as you okay. can be in French politics okay. and still get elected. Obviously, they're further left than Bernie, but like yeah. they're as far left as you can be in France and get elected. The communists hate the socialists in a lot of cases because the communists are further left than that, and they're not really as relevant to the government as a result. The radicals are the exact opposite of what they sound like. The radicals have the same kind of position in France in this is in this period as democrats do they're the center left uh, right okay yeah, the majority yeah. left yeah um so the radicals are not radicals and the socialists yeah. are not communists but they are okay. far left for french politics All again right. everything in france is backward yeah um so Bland. the radicals and socialists had worked together in the past um they, they were allied in that they all kind of broadly supported human rights, democracy, and anti-clericalism, pushing against, like, the Catholic Church. Yeah. But they didn't get along on much else. The radicals were the party of, like, the petite bourgeoisie, the lower middle class, small business owners, and successful peasants. They were big on individualism and self-reliance and, of course, property ownership as a method of social advancement. The socialists are socialists. Their partnerships were always awkward, and for one thing, the Socialist Party had a standing rule that none of their deputies were allowed to accept ministerial posts in radical governments, because they saw huh. themselves as a Marxist revolutionary party, and if they were seen as working within a liberal government, the communists would eat them alive and suck in their disaffected members. So, okay. we'll, they get elected to what is effectively French Parliament or Congress or whatever. Yeah. They have deputies, but they won't serve in the government of the radical majority, because that would mean compromising the fact that they're Marxist revolutionaries and they'll lose members to the communists then and the communists hate the socialists because they're willing yeah. to get like elected at all basically um and they're willing to work with the radicals God. it's very very complicated and dumb but it's also yeah. like basically what happens between the left all the time right you've yeah. got the the left that wants to actually govern and you've got the left that's like the system is so fucked up that governing means You're buying culpable. into the things that yeah. we're fighting against you know yeah so wow yeah. yeah, despite the fact that actual socialists like weren't taking uh, weren't willing to take up ministerial jobs and the fact that the left coalition didn't agree on much, the election of this new government, which is called the cartel, drives the right wing completely bugfuck. And I'm sure Americans mm. can understand what that looked like. The, the conservative print media basically calls this stage one of a communist invasion. The oh, socialists geez. who the communists hated were considered to be just the same as the communists, revolutionaries yeah. in sheep's clothing. In 1926, oh, the cartel yeah. really pisses off the right wing when they approved the Washington Accords, which guaranteed that France would keep repaying her war debt to the United States, even if Germany defaulted on their payments to France. At the same time, the cartel brings the Germans into the League of Nations. The cartel in France are like this liberal government. They try to rehabilitate Germany because Germany is yeah. kind of socialist at this point. So like, let's bring them back into the national community. Like we, we can't keep ostracizing them as a result of World War One. And part Part of bringing Germany back in is they negotiate a more reasonable repayment arrangement with Germany that the right wing sees as the left selling out the country and its war dead. Right. God, dog, man. <laughs> it's so God, dog. Up. Yeah. <laughs> you just. Oh, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm getting I feel like I'm feeling itchy on my lower yeah. back, man. You like, know, everyone knows where this is going. Yeah. Yes, bro. <laughs> like and then, this, and then the thing is this. It's like. Yeah. In the same way that we call that y'all call Bernie Sanders a radical leftist, I'm mm -hmm. like talking about Bernie Sanders talking about stuff that they do in Canada. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, the, yeah. the communist bastion of Canada. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So like 
He ain't really radical. He's not no. really that. You know what I'm saying? He lightweight. You know. Yeah, and, and but, when I compare like a, a party to like they're the Bidens or whatever, yeah, I'm not no, saying their it. politics are like it. It's like a comparative thing. No, yeah, like, yeah. I get the scale. I, I totally, I'm totally following the scale. And I'm saying, in, yeah, in this scenario, yeah. it's yeah. like what they're suggesting yeah. is reasonable. Mm-hmm. They, you not gonna get yeah. your money. So yeah. you're not going to get your the, money if you kill the Germans. Yes, let's bring them back in and let money. them rebuild and we'll yeah. eventually get paid. It'll they be will slower. always be like this if we never yeah. rehabilitate them. It's the same thing yeah. with like with like prison reform. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah. This like it's just going to keep. No, we have yeah. to do this. Diff, this is reasonable. We're mm-hmm. not going to get the result that we both want. So mm-hmm. let me just. And you talking about I'm selling you out. Oh, OK, mm-hmm. bro. That's it's, why I'm, yeah. like, I'm getting itchy. Yeah. 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 So the years the cartel is in power are basically a constant stream of outrage porn for the now exploding right wing media ecosystem. Okay. Newspapers like Action Francois, Candide, oh which means candid, Gringor, and Je suis partout, uh, which means I am everywhere, reach hundreds of thousands and eventually more than a million conservative French readers. Uh, the first of these was Candide, which had been established in 1865 and from the beginning was both anti democratic and anti Semitic. When communism kind of went viral worldwide, it added a violently anti-communist to its repertoire. Mm. Candide was followed by Gringor, which was named after a French journalist. And Je suis partout uh, was initially not anti-Semitic or right-wing, but throughout the 1920s, at the direction of its head editor, the paper got more and more extreme. In the late 20s and early 30s, it goes all in for Mussolini, and it starts to get progressively anti-Semitic, until by the late 1930s, it was literally just a Nazi magazine. So these are like the big... The big names in right wing media. The Candy right? Gringo. Yeah. <laughs> Candy Gringo. <laughs> anyway. So in the early Sorry. years of the cartel, well, the French left is like, I think objectively being pretty reasonable. The French right wing is losing its entire damn mind. Yeah. And as will again sound familiar to everyone, the right wing reacts to the left having some success by forming a system of violent street fighting gangs so they could beat up their opponents in the streets. Sheesh. Um, this was, of course, part of a trend in Europe that exploded from 1919 to 1923 or so. We've talked about this both yeah, in the case of Italy and Germany. Now, again, in France, there's less unrest and there's less angry veterans who want to tear down the state because they and that state had won their war. So it takes longer in France for a paramilitary culture to really kick off. One of the most direct causes comes in 1924, as the study France and Fascism by Brian Jenkins notes. The right suspicions about revolutionary and anti-national nature of the cartel were apparently confirmed in November 1924 when the government sanctioned the internment of the ashes of the socialist founding father Jean Jaurès in the Pantheon. While socialists and radicals led a cortege to the Temple of the Republic, the conservative press focused on a communist counter-demonstration held in protest at the parliamentary left's hijacking of Jaurès. The presence of noisy communists in the streets with socialist and radical deputies suggested that the cartel had accepted Bolsheviks into its ranks. In the Chamber of Deputies, right-wing deputy Pierre Tattinger denounced the revolutionary Saturnalia of the day, which he claimed he had witnessed a true outbreak of revolution from the international underworld that infects France. Tattinger promised that if the government could not take matters into hand, the leagues of public safety are ready to defend and save our threatened society. Now, the leagues are these these militant organizations, these street organizations. So what happens here is this socialist guy's ashes get brought back to France, this like founder of the French Socialist Party. And the socialists and the radicals is kind of a demonstration of left unity, have a have a a ceremony for this this dead 
socialist. Yeah. The communists who hate everybody who's not a communist have their own rally and they're more extreme, but they're very tiny and they obviously hate the rest of the left. The conservative yeah. media looks at just the communist demonstration and says, that's all of them. That's the whole oh left. They're God. all like these guys. <sighs> Again, it's, it's all the same. Robert. It's, it's all the same. It's nothing the same. changes. <laughs> yeah. Nothing changes. You know what yeah. else isn't going to change? Me asking you to take an ad break. Yep. You know who won't uh, radicalize the French right over anti-Semitism based on uh, communist demonstrations taken out of context? Yeah, man. Hopefully these uh, these other podcasts. These other podcasts or whatever. We're advertising. Do that. Yay. Yay. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. All right. We're back. So this we're guy. Back. I knew you were going to say that. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I'm you using your me. own you So this guy, Pierre Tattinger, uh, who we'll talk about in a bit is a big advocate of these leagues, these right-wing street fighting gangs. And he he keeps 
like for years afterwards, he will talk about November 1924, this like one communist rally as and use it as like a, the whole reason why the entire left needs to be defeated. Um, yeah, and yeah. a lot of like a huge chunk of Catholics and nationalists in France believe that like based on, again, this one demonstration, a communist revolution is like right about to happen. Now, so this was made worse by the fact that the mid-1920s saw France suffer an economic contraction that, while not as severe as the one experienced by Germany, was pretty bad. Now, you mix that in with the declining birth rate, and as Brian Jenkins writes, quote, In comparison to the dynamic and youthful regimes abroad, such as Mussolini's Italian fascist state, the republic did not seem fit for purpose. Sections of the right thus looked for a solution beyond the institutions of the regime to violent extra-parliamentary groups known as leagues. So France is having trouble here, and the right, Mm. rather than like trying to take any accurate stock of things, looks at the propaganda coming out of the Italian fascist state, which is not accurate, and is like, see, everything's great in Italy. Why don't we do that? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God, dude. It's great. Ugh. So the leagues are not quite like the Black Shirts or the Fry Corps. They're not heavily yeah. armed. Most of them are veterans, but they don't have like machine guns generally and like massive. Like they're not private armies. They're yeah. groups of combat veterans generally who want to like drink and fight in the streets against the left. Uh, one of the first leagues was founded by that uh, Pierre Tattinger, uh, and he called them the Jeunesse Patriots or the Young Patriots. And they were initially the youth wing of the League of Patriots, which was a political organization. God, it's now, all the same. It's, 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 yeah, Even the, young, the pa- young Republicans, right? Yes. Turning Point USA or whatever. Yeah. We're patriots. Like, mm-hmm. shut up, Doc. Okay, anyway. They're all proud boys, you know? Yes, They're all the proud, the proud boys. Yeah. <laughs> so oh a lot of people on the left recognize the leagues as a threat. Um, and they are. In 1925, one French leftist, Louvre, noted that since Mussolini's march on Rome, one could no longer so much as walk in the street without wearing a colored shirt. You know, he's talking about like, yeah. they've got, you've got the black shirts in Rome, the brown shirts in Germany, and now like all of our guys have their own shirts, their okay. own colored shirts for each leagues. Yeah. And he warns that, Louvre warns that if these leagues were able to like stop fighting each other over petty bullshit and could unite under a single charismatic leader, the way would be open for what he called the rule of castor oil and the grenade. There it is. So he's like, basically, we've got all these fascists. If they can unify behind one guy, we're in trouble, you know? Yep. There's the castor oil again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a real thing in this period. Yeah. So in this... The left-wing fear was, you know, accurate, reasonable, but perhaps a bit premature. The French leagues regularly reprinted fascist propaganda and definitely admired the black shirts, but they were also French. And if you know anything about France, it's that France kind of hates the idea of other people's cultures coming into France and gaining influence. They are very proud of being French, and even French proto-fascists, like their Spanish counterparts, were kind of didn't, like, would argue that they didn't want fascism because fascism's a foreign ideology, right? We're Mm. extreme rightists, but we want our own French version of that. We don't want yes. to like steal from Italy. We're France. We're better than that's Italy. A, I was like, that's pretty, that's pretty on brand France. <laughs> yeah, it's very that on idea. brand for France. Yeah, that's yeah. very France. Yeah. So one scholar named Dobry calls this the dilemma of the authoritarian nationalist, which is the fact that nationalists want to be authentically of their nation uh, because fascism tends to gain power by reacting against purported foreign influence. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, they want to imitate successful authoritarians abroad. And this creates a problem for a lot of fascists. We, We again, we saw the same thing in France. Yeah. Now, the struggle within the French right over this continued through the mid 1920s, while the leagues went through what Dobry calls an apprenticeship period 
period to the fascist international. So the French are behind the German and Italian fascists. They're not as as quick. They're kind of learning from them, right? And they're slower okay. on the uptake as a result. Yeah. Um, now, because a lot of awful lot of French League members were veterans, the Leagues benefited from what became known as the Veterans Mystique, which was a near worship in France of what were called the Front Generation. People celebrated the Trenchocracy, which is like the democracy of the trenches, right? Okay. Um, this is huge in Europe. It's not just in France, because in Germany, Hitler makes a lot of hay out of the fact that he'd been a corporal in the trenches, not like an officer or a nobleman, but a normal soldier. Um, and I think Americans can understand how like right-wing groups can use veneration of veterans as a way to push their hmm. own yeah. radical lens, you know? Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Brian Jenkins writes about how one right-wing firebrand named Valois used the idea of the pure trench warrior. Uh, quote, Valois warned veterans that the Republic had sabotaged the hard-won gains of the war. Only the installation of a fascist and dictatorial combatant state would restore France to the politics of victory. Likewise, the young Patriots leader Tattinger extolled the virtue of the new elite born of war. His group alleged that the cartel had sabotaged the fruits of the war and clipped the wings of victory. These leagues were not attracted solely to the veterans' supposed moral quantities. Only veterans were purported to join the young Patriots' iron brigade and the legions, both elite paramilitary action squads. Now, obviously, most veterans don't join the leagues, uh, and a lot of them also join communist veterans organizations. But the worship of veterans and the idea that the sacrifices of 1918 had been betrayed by the leftist leaders of France becomes a popular right-wing rallying cry in the mid-20s. Throughout this whole period, the right press continues to gin up a desire for the blood of their political opponents. One right-wing journalist, politician, and street organizer named Charles Morris was jailed in 1925 for threatening to have the minister of the interior killed like a dog if police kept it harassing the leaks. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. There's a couple, Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever her name is, the QAnon lady who's talking about that Jewish space later and probably helped carry out and incite and advise the people. She's the the Jew laser. Yeah, that that lady. There's like three of her in France in this period. Wow. Okay. And Morris is kind of one of them. Now, Morris is an interesting guy. He was born a monarchist and was is what we would probably call a Catholic fascist today. His okay. earliest political memory was the pol- was the French defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, which seems to have fueled a lot of his anti-left hatred later in life. He became an anti-democratic activist in the 1890s, and then came the Dreyfus Affair. And of course, Morris is a Dreyfusard. He believes that Dreyfus is guilty because he's Jewish, and he grows increasingly anti-Semitic after the Dreyfus Affair. In 1899, he founds a newspaper, uh, Action Francais, which literally means French action. And yes, it does sound kind of like a porn. Um, His magazine (laughs) becomes very influential among the French right wing, and Morris uses his influence to, among other things, convince a lot of conservatives that destroying democracy and going full monarchy is the right thing to do. He writes an article in 1899 titled Dictator and King. That's about how we should have a dictator king in France again. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. You know what France's problem is? Not enough kings. You know what? (laughs) (laughs) You remember remember we had serfdom? Yeah. Let's go back to that. Let's go back to that. That was amazing. Ricketts. 
1905, Mara starts writing articles about how swell it would be for the right wing to create extra-legal paramilitary organizations and have them do a coup d'etat. When the leagues rose up, Morris was thrilled, and soon Action Francais, or French Action, has its own league. When Morris goes to jail for threatening to murder a member of the government, his business partner at the newspaper says this to a gathering of their followers in 1926. If Morris were wounded or hit, I would at once give orders to have the ministers of the Republic immediately assassinated. So, like, the right wing isn't just, like... Dog whistling around. violence. They're like, we no. should kill them all. We should no, kill everyone on the it. left. Yes, it's like, <laughs> like hey, the American mean right now. That? I yeah. mean, kill them. So mm-hmm. what do you? So in what what way do you mean? I mean, dead. I mean, we shoot them to I death. Mean, I mean, because... we kill them. <laughs> this is not uh, a symbol. Yeah, yeah. It's wild, and it's the same as what's been ha- what happened ahead of the sixth. You know, uh, yeah. now obviously Morris and his business partner were not alone in their calls for violence against the left. I'm going to quote from France and fascism here. Such calls to violence often went unheeded, and law and order were not threatened to the extent seen in Germany and Italy. However, low-level physical violence was common. Newspaper sellers from rival organizations regularly came to blows in the street, while political meetings were frequently the scene of violence. Furthermore, despite their claims to stand for authority and order, the leagues could fight with the police too. The French actions created mayhem in the Latin Quarter and beyond, beating political opponents and reveling in confrontations with the police. Meanwhile, a young Patriots League died in March 1926 during fighting with police at a demonstration against the Minister of the Interior, Louis Malvi. So Hmm. these organizations are kind of recruiting and growing because they're fighting with the left and they're fighting with the cops, right? Yeah. Now, in most of France, the armed paramilitary start to decline in popularity after 1923. And in France, they mostly faded into the background temporarily by 1926 after two years of regular street brawls. They left behind them, in the words of some scholars, a culture of violent rhetoric, uniformed politics, and street fighting, right? Mm-hmm. Which, again, very similar. Un- yeah. Violent rhetoric, uniformed politics, and street fighting. The Proud Boys, yeah. you know, it's Proud Boys yes. shit. Yes, Proud Boys. Um, now, this was not the end of violent unrest in France, just to pause, because in 1926, a new conservative government gets elected and the cartel comes to an end. So that's why the leagues kind of fade after 26, uh, as the conservatives get elected it again. Be- it comes a home game again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. You're not, you're not um, the away team no more. Okay. Yep. And the reason the right wins in 1926 is that the left has fractured again. The communists launch a series of attacks against the socialists, who they call social fascists. Oh Infighting God, causes changes. the left to temporarily dissolve <laughs> as meaningful opposition. And this meant the leagues also had a lot less of a reason to exist. Big business had spent the previous four years pumping money into the far right, and they withdraw their financial support after 26, which causes the leagues to collapse. So the leagues are okay. floated by rich businessmen who then like, well, now conservatives are in power again. We don't we don't want street don't gangs anymore. anymore. Yeah. yeah. So the temporary fall of the leagues and the victory of the center right did not mean the fever swamps of far right media ceased operation. And no magazine or newspaper was more influential than French action from a write up in of all things, the Harvard Crimson quote, It collected within its cells the inheritors of a tradition of nationalist, monarchist, and reactionary thought extending back almost a hundred years. It was no mere cabal of amoral big businessmen, such as supported the so-called Committee France Allegmain and the ultra-conservative Grand Press, but a meeting place for distinguished and gifted intellectuals whose disdain for the Republic was wholly disinterested, the result of literary and philosophical predispositions, not any desire to safeguard financial investments. So again, the far right in the the 
the the period where the left is in control is funded by businessmen who are safeguarding their investments, right? And okay. that's why they want to fight socialists in the street. But the guys propagandizing to the far right are true believers. It's not okay. about money for them. It's about yeah. fascism, what? you know? It's about the thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and Morris, being a monarchist, is only marginally uh-huh. happier under a conservative government than a liberal one. The king is still gone, and he wants a fucking king. So throughout the years of right-wing power in France, he continues to advocate for an armed coup as the only way to bring back the monarchy. It would have been easy for people in the left to mistake he and his followers for isolated loons, and a lot of people in the center particularly did. Then the global economy crashed, and in France, it crashes with the right wing in power. In May of 1932, the left wins again. Their victory is, again, enabled by the fact that the radicals, who are uh, the moderates, ally with the socialists again to avoid splitting the left wing vote. So the left continuously wins in France and Spain uh, and Germany when the the left and the center left are willing to, like, work together electorally, right? Yeah. And the right Uh, is obviously enraged and terrified by what was surely a prelude to full-on Stalinism. Now, I just said that, like, the left consistently wins elections in Europe against the right in this period when, you know, they're all willing to work together. The problem with the far left and the center left working together is the same thing that we're seeing now under Biden. Liberals and the left can never get their shit together to agree on anything. And in France, they can't put aside their differences to get a basic aid package together to help people with the depression, which, again, does not sound at all familiar. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's my back tingle again. Yeah. Yeah. So the socialists demand direct aid for the unemployed, while the radicals worry about the deficit and think that it's much more important to balance the budget. Oh my They're, god. <laughs> I know it's the same exact thing. Oh my god. Okay. The radicals who are centrists, their yes. best idea is of course austerity, cuts in wages for public workers. The intractable debate between the socialists and the radicals leads to a series of different liberal left governments. Obviously it's like a parliamentary system, so you can have votes of no confidence, you dissolve yeah. the government, you bring in a new government new ministers. This happens a number of times, and none of these governments are able to actually help people. And the French economy spirals downhill. The right wing, correspondingly, surges, and it unifies behind the thing the right wing does best, picking up weapons and making death threats to people they disagree with. The leagues that had remained functional after 1926, namely French Action and the Young Patriots, see Mm. a swell in their membership. They're soon joined by new leagues. In June of 1933, a perfume magnate and fascist named Coty forms his own paramilitary group, which he uses to spread anti-Republican authoritarian propaganda and pushes this through the newspaper that he owns as well. By February of 1934, the Perfume Guys paramilitary gang slash newspaper is the most influential and largest fascist movement in France. Are you saying perfume? Yeah, he's a perfume guy. Yeah. (laughs) Like France's most influential fascist gang leader is a perfume dude. Like a guy that like fragrance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So okay, I was French. big into wow. the fragrance business. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, again pretty on brand. Mm-hmm. Pretty on brand. Yeah, Cody's men wore blue shirts and lots of leather, and one has to assume smelled incredible. They, you know, smelled incredible. They, <laughs> yeah, sound like they probably looked amazing too. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not they, I'm, I'm yeah. sure they did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now another fascist French guy named Marcel Bucard starts a league called the Francistes in September of 1933. Bucard repeatedly praised foreign fascist governments, and he was famous for making long speeches about the almost sexual love he had for his revolver. Um, oh my God. Again, another Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like, I'm going to yeah, take yeah, my yeah. Glock into Congress kind of guy. Yeah. It's the same fucking shit. Just the worship of weapons and such. Yeah. 
And then, of course, there's the Croix de Fieu, which is like the Cross of Fire. This is an organization that had been founded as a veterans association for men who had been decorated for bravery in combat. So all of the Croix de Fieu, the Cross of Fire men, are like not just combat veterans, but men who have been particularly awarded for their courage under fire. Mm -hmm. So... It's not founded necessarily as a right-wing radical militant organization, but it becomes one very quickly. Okay. Its leader is a guy named Colonel LaRock, and he holds military-style parades and is not afraid to use his men as a political cudgel. And the way they're organized is actually pretty genius. They have, at their height, about half a million uh, officers and NCOs in their membership. And the officers and NCOs are each like put in charge of 10 guys, 10 other former soldiers who were of lower ranks. And their job is to get help with those guys for those guys using the resources of the league and also control their votes. So the half million or so officers and NCOs in the cross of fire control about 5 million votes. They're very politically influential as a result. So these guys are right wing and kind of militant, but they're also very system loyal, right? They're not, we want to overthrow the government there. We want to organize as a political entity in order to dominate the government. Yeah. So Brian Jenkins writes, quote, In November of 1931, the colonel and his followers stormed the stage at a meeting on disarmament at Trocadero, bringing an end to the proceedings. Meanwhile, the League's shock troopers, called Dispos, were employed to maintain security at meetings and fight the left in the street. In October 1933, a new manifesto announced a more radically anti-parliamentary direction, while the group opened its ranks to non-veterans through its Volontaires Nationaux Auxiliary. So they get, you know, start more system loyal and they get kind of more closer and closer to fascism as time goes on. As 1934 dawned, right-wing paramilitaries were as organized and as large as they had ever been in France. The left was was fighting too much within themselves to the, between themselves to deliver any kind of meaningful aid that might have tamped down on unrest. Meanwhile, Uh the right blamed the global economic collapse on their own leftists and of course, the Jews. Yeah. They also are able to look abroad at the propaganda that's being put out by Italy and now Germany and be like, look at how good things are going in the fascist countries where I assume I have accurate information from. We should do that. What did they do that we're not doing? Yeah, they're not. Oh, we're not killing enough leftists. uh, Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And then as everything in France is about as hot as it could get. What comes to be known as the Stavitsky Affair bursts onto the front page of every rightist newspaper in France. Oh my and God. I'm going to see how long it takes you to like d- figure out what the most modern parallel to the okay, Stavitsky Affair back to is. Again. All right. Sergei Alexander Stavitsky was born in Ukraine in 1886 to a Jewish family who'd immigrated to France in 1899. His father was a dentist. Stavitsky, however, was a born grifter. While still a teenager, he established himself as a con man. By the mid-1920s, he'd gotten good at it, making enough money money to dress as a rich guy, even though he was constantly on the verge of losing everything. Stavisky used his charisma and his ability to trick gullible rich people to keep the cash flowing. France and fascism oh, writes, no. quote, he left oh, a trail no. of fake companies, counterfeit checks and bonds and fraudulent oh, share no. transactions. And following oh, his arrest in July 1926 for stealing and stolen securities, he spent 17 months in the La Sante prison while his case awaited trial. Following his release on medical grounds, the hearing of the case against him was repeatedly deferred, 19 postponements in all, leaving Stavisky free to launch a string of further dubious ventures under the alias Sergei Alexander. In 1928, he embarked on a scheme which, though lucrative, would eventually prove his undoing. 
the fraudulent exploitation of municipal pawn shops. In Orleans, he extracted 25 million francs from the pawn shop in exchange for fake gemstones, subsequently redeeming the stones with cash derived from the municipal pawn shop he had since launched in Bayonne. This was a much bigger operation, and the credit was financed by issuing bonds well in excess of the value of the articles deposited. Cash was then realized through the sale of these fake bonds to banks and insurance companies. In the summer of 1933, having spent lavishly and gambled heavily, Stavisky found himself unable to redeem the bonds, and his attempts to win backing for a new operation, which he hoped would bail him out yet again, were soon frustrated. So that's the nature of his con. Yeah, yeah. At first it sounded like, damn, that's a pretty good lick, man. He's a a good con man for a while. That's worked the system, yeah. So in September of 1933, one of the businesses he conned, an insurance company, called for a judicial inquiry into his business. On December 23rd, the director of a pawn shop Stavisky owned broke down under questioning. He did not just incriminate his boss, but also a local elected leader from the Radical Party. Stavisky immediately went on the run, fleeing Paris on Christmas Day. And just as quickly the right-wing press picks up the story, French Action and other newspapers launch a massive campaign to allege that not just the one guy implicated, but a whole host of radical politicians, basically all of them, had been involved in a far-reaching financial conspiracy. Since Stavisky was Jewish, you can guess how this folded in with the fact that all of these papers also had huge hard-ons for Hitler and Mussolini. One radical deputy resigned. Another radical, the minister of the economy, was found to have encouraged people to purchase junk bonds from Stavisky back in 1932. So two radicals are implicated, like clearly. So he resigns, and to the right, this proves that all of the other deputies they'd been accusing were guilty. Two newspaper editors were also found to have been on Stavisky's payroll, which encouraged people to buy junk bonds, and then these guys are arrested, which feeds into the narrative that the liberal press is untrustworthy and part of the Jewish conspiracy. As 1934 dawned, right-wing media could write about nothing else but the Stavisky affair. And then, on the 9th, with public interest at its height, Stavisky himself is cornered by police at a house in Chamois. He kills himself to avoid capture. So as soon as he kills himself, both the communist and the far right press leap on the story, alleging that Skavisky had not committed suicide. He'd been murdered to cover up his connections to powerful leaders. He's the fucking French Jeffrey Epstein. He's Epstein. Yeah. He's Epstein. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. He's Epstein. He doesn't have like a network of child prostitutes, but he's a guy who's implicated with a bunch of powerful people in a series of crimes. He goes to jail once. He continues committing crime, implicates more powerful people. And then when he's cornered, kills himself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's the same thing. It's like the exact same playbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and 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 the best part about the Epstein story was they said the camera glitched. Yeah, and there's like, there's word. shady stuff like that with this, right? It's not cameras because yeah, it's whatever. Yeah, it's the same thing. But yeah, no, nah, yeah. this is and I have no that idea. is a one to one, bro. Yeah, like, it doesn't crazy. It, it, just like with Epstein, it doesn't really matter if he killed himself or was murdered. No. Same thing with this guy. What matters is that everyone on the far left and the far right is sure that he was murdered in order yes. to protect mm-hmm. liberals. Yes. Right. In order to protect mainstream, I should say, dude. center politicians. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. There's um, way too much at stake. Yeah. You know who won't murder Jeffrey? Ep- okay. Well, you can't because he already did. But yeah, he's already dead. So we, they definitely won't kill him. Um, definitely won't get it. Products and services that support this podcast. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. So we're back. So the radical what about president. The conspiracy theory that he's still alive, though. Like, I feel like your outbreak is. Yeah, I mean, we're not. You can't actually prove that, Robert. I, 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 I am what? not. I'm not making any conclusions about Jeffrey Epstein on this podcast. I'm just saying that like Epstein, this guy Stavisky is said to have killed himself. And nobody who's on the left or the right really believes. There's, it, right? Yeah, there's one yeah. definitive thing you could say about Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein. Is yeah. that I don't care how many dollars you put in before and after his name. Yeah, he is a pimp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is a different kind of pimp. Yeah, but yeah, just a pimp. Yeah. And this guy's is pimping. Yes. Yeah. It's just a different lick. He's selling different products. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So the radical president, like the, the or not president, but like prime minister of France, who's again a radical, does his best to ignore the scandal, arguing that it's not a big deal. Like, yeah, the, the guys who were implicated already got arrested. Like, it's not a big deal. Um, and it m- might have even been true that like the only people implicated had been caught. But that doesn't really matter um, because obviously this becomes a huge conspiracy. And the uh, prime minister refuses calls from both the right and from his socialist allies to call for a parliamentary inquiry into the whole situation. This just makes everything worse, proving to many Frenchmen that there had been a conspiracy. Brian Jenkins writes, what might be called the dialectics of conspiracy thus played a significant role in the escalation of crisis. Stavisky's death gave decisive impetus to conspiracy theories on the right and intensified the campaign both in the press and on the street. Meanwhile, the perception on the left that the scandal was being orchestrated for sinister political purposes led the government to harden its opposite its position and refuse to make concessions. This in turn gave the impression that the government was engaged in a cover-up and therefore must have something to hide, thereby further reinforcing the right's conspiracy theories. 
However, in this competitive press environment, it was inevitable that the more radical and scurrilous newspapers that set the pace and tone for others to emulate. It was French action that crystallized public opinion around them and orchestrated the developing affair, each day adding fresh names to its dossier of suspects and decisively raising the temperature on 7th of January with the headline, Down with the Thebes! and an inflammatory appeal to the people of Paris. Most of the conservative press simply followed their lead, albeit in less flamboyant language, which in turn helped legitimize the message. Again, the truth doesn't matter. What matters is the narratives that take off. Yeah, 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 totally. From January 9th on, and this is 1934, there were demonstrations and street violence almost every night in Paris. Every week, the crowds grew larger. On Saturday, January 27th, the situation was bad enough that the president resigned and the government dissolved, or the prime minister, whatever, resigned and the government dissolved. This was seen as a big victory by the right, but nobody knew what came next. The left are still the elected leaders, right? Uh-huh. You dissolve the government. You don't kick out all the deputies who have been elected. You just pick a new prime minister and new ministers, right? That's what it means. Yeah. And the left is still like gets to decide who the new government is. And they bring in a new liberal president, a guy named Deladier. Now, while all this is happening, the socialists, the only part of the left coalition that has not been horribly tainted by the Stavisky affair. It's radicals that are implicated. The socialists are not. Yeah. The radicals need the socialists both to keep the government from being dissolved and to avoid a deeper investigation into the matter. So, yeah probably a bunch more radicals were guilty, you know? They really don't want there to be an investigation. So, since they had the radicals over a barrel, the socialists decide to make a demand of their own. Being good leftists, this demand is that the radicals fire the Paris chief of police, Jean Chiappa, because he was a piece of shit who sympathized with fascist paramilitary groups. Okay. Hmm. Of course, the far right loves Chiapa, and they see his mm-hmm. sacking and the radical promises that the police will be reformed. So the radicals, in order to keep the government going and avoid an investigation, are like, we'll fire this guy and we'll completely reform the Paris police. That's the socialists' demand. And the okay. right wing is like, this is like this is clearly the a precursor to a communist revolution. They're trying to get rid of the police so they can take over the streets and take all of our money, right? <laughs> God, um, God, dog, man. So this starts That's a ticking changes. clock on the right because they think yeah. that there's this commie plot being carried out, and they have only days to act in order to avert it. Laroque, Colonel Laroque of the Cross of Fire, declares his paramilitaries to be defenders of public order. One league, French Solidarity, declares civil war is imminent. While the Young Patriots <laughs> claim the country is in danger, a wholesale purge is being prepared. Oh newspapers, right wing newspapers, run articles about how communist revolutionaries are on the verge of seizing power. Colonel Laroque warns his followers, a government whose sign is the red flag wants to reduce you to slavery. We are threatened with sectarian dictatorship. The nothing that sounds familiar. Public order. Yeah. Again, nothing that's ever happened again. Nothing uh, in any God, other country. Wow. This is so frustrating. I know, it's terrible. This <laughs> it's is so, so frustrating. <laughs> yes. So, elected leaders were also pushing these lines. Philippe Henriot, a deputy from Bordeaux, was a Catholic militant who believed that the Stavisky affair was a Jewish Masonic conspiracy to destroy France. On three occasions in January, he took to the rostrum of the Chamber of Deputies to demand right-wingers rise up and sweep the republic. British journalist Alexander Wirth was in Paris at the time, and he wrote this in early February. Already on Monday, Paris was full of wild rumors. Troops, it was said, had been brought into Paris. If the demonstrators were to cause trouble, the government would not hesitate to use tanks and machine guns. The work would be entrusted to Moroccan and Senegalese soldiers who would have no compunction about shooting down their white fellow citizens. And it is, is by the way, one thing you kind of have to give the French in this period is they are kind of the first 
Western government to have a, a significant number of non-white citizens. They do that. Yeah. Not that yeah. they treat them equally or anything, well, but like but it is a yeah. thing that happens in like the 1700s, really. Um, but Did, why? Yeah. God dang, man. I'm of so, course, they use them for shock troops. You know? Of course. Yeah. I'm like, I feel like it was about time that one of us say something funny, but it's yeah. Like, I can't. I just, I got nothing because it's just so haunting on the freaking nose yeah it's exactly all it's exactly what's happened you know so this prop brings us to february 6th 1934 okay the french government assembles for a vote of confidence in prime minister deladier so a vote on whether or not he's going to keep being the prime minister or they're going to dissolve the government again uh and i found a french history website herodity that describes how things started quote In all, hardly more than 30,000 demonstrators, a large majority of them who were ex-combatants, everyone is mobilized on the theme, down with thieves, and a demand for more civility and honesty in the government. At the start, at the call of Lieutenant Colonel De La Roque, the cross of fire quickly dispersed as soon as the first clashes with the mobile guard occurred. Although it arrived at the end of the afternoon at the gates of the Palais Bourbon, La Roque and his veterans refused to occupy it. Their dispersal makes any possibility of overthrowing the regime by force futile. But on the other side of the sign around the Palace of the Concorde, the demonstration degenerates. Thousands of activists try to march on the Palais Bourbon, the Bourbon Palace, I guess. So yeah. what happens here is this crowd starts like and, and the cross of fire guys are a huge chunk of it, starts marching on the gates of the Capitol. And as soon as the police get engaged and the crowd starts fighting with the cops, Colonel LaRocque calls his men back. But thousands and thousands of other right wing militants continue to surge ahead and keep fighting the cops. And as night falls, the protests go from being just aggressive and violent to being an active attempt to storm the Capitol. Protesters light buses on fire and destroy property, tearing down barricades and barriers as they attempt to breach the Chamber of Deputies where Parliament is in active session. The police panic when the crowd starts to break through the barricades and they open fire. Some in the crowd fire back. And by the end of it all... As many as 26, we don't have an exact death toll. Some will say 26 people were killed and more than 1,500 are injured. Some will say it's more like, you know, five to 10 and 1,000 injured. But it's it's everything that happened in the Capitol on the 6th, except they don't get inside the Capitol. They don't make Because the in. French, like, order forces just start shooting, like firing yeah. into the crowd with rifles. Um So the riots continue for days, marking what most liberals and leftists would come to see as a coup attempt by the far right. Mm -hmm. This is probably fair, but it's also true that after the ninth, the communists start coming out in force in the streets and do a lot of rioting themselves. And actually, like three or four days after the attempt to storm the Capitol, a lot of what's happening on the street is being done by the communists. They didn't attempt to breach the Chamber of Deputies, though. The whole affair terrifies everybody, and Prime Minister Deladier resigns on advice from the police and army to avoid further violence. For the first time in the history of the Third Republic, street violence had brought down a French government. The week of February 6th was, in fact, the most violent period of political unrest in France since the Commune of 1871. Not everyone in the right is thrilled by this. Maurice, head of French action, seems to have panicked immediately. From the Crimson, quote, 
Though he often considered the possibility of the coup, in books and in the pages of his movement's newspaper, it is doubtful that he ever actually planned a revolution. On the one occasion which fate presented to his grasp, the riots before Chamber on February 6, 1934, he did nothing. Professor Weber calls the 6th of February a victory lost. Morris's hesitation at what seemed the very gates of power, though this impression was exaggerated, was, as Professor Weber says, the moment of truth which showed up the emptiness of almost everyone's position. The parliamentary re- regime was shown to be a tottering, precarious structure. The rightist rioters had made their point, but the right itself was exposed as well, exposed as a lot of theorists, sorely lacking in the capacity to carry out their dreams. French action had organized publications, public meetings, a party structure that extended through France, but they lacked the will to power. They were incapable of a Munich push, much less a 10-year conspiracy to capture parliamentary power. At the moment of reaction's greatest political triumphs in Europe, French fascism collapsed. Wow. Again, doesn't sound familiar at all. Wow. Yeah, no, I've never. And again, fucking um, Morris here, he's like Alex Jones almost, right? He's this guy who's telling everyone, overthrow the government. And then when they start, because Alex Jones is there on the 6th in D.C., he fucking leaves as soon as people cross. He's He's like, like, no, sir. Oh, wait. Yeah. (laughs) At first, I thought when you was talking about the other dude that ended up being Epstein, I thought it was Jones at first. No, 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 no. Because it was just like, fucking Stavisky's your Epstein. Yeah, he's definitely Epstein. But at Mm -hmm. first, when we first started talking, I was like, you sound like a little Alex Jones. But nah, that's... Morris yeah. is your Alex Morris Jones type Alex figure, Jones, right? He's just like, oh, wait, I'm not. Oh, gonna, no, I just wanted go to make money y'all. telling people yeah, to revolt like, and getting them like ginned up. I didn't yeah. actually want that to happen. That's scary as hell. Yeah. Y'all. Oh, y'all actually pull triggers. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah. 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 Um, and Kurt, you can see Colonel de la Rock kind of in the same light, although you could also argue that he was just very state loyal, right? Like yeah. he wanted a new government. He was he wanted less democracy, but he wasn't about to storm the Capitol. Yeah. Um. So the main outcome of February 6th was that the elected right wing grows closer and closer to the insurrectionary far right. It also unifies the left wing, inspiring a popular front in France that takes power after a brief period of conservative rule following Deladier's fall. The mm-hmm. 1936 French popular front was at its core an anti-fascist political union. And domestically, it does a good job of stopping the French far right from capturing power. Uh, And this has actually led to a theory in French historiography that France is itself immune to fascism in a unique way. Um, The story goes that a mix of France's longstanding democratic traditions and the fact that its right wing is split between its own native brands of extremism means the country can't fall into fascism. This is nonsense. I will tell you right now, I think this is fucking bullshit. Um, And there are a lot of scholars... The book France and Fascism is a very long scholarly treatise on why this is bullshit. Yeah. Um, But a lot of French scholars after World War II will argue this, that like France is immune to fascism. Um, The reality is that France came very close to falling to fascism on the 6th, and it did fall to fascism in 1940. Now- this is by conquest, right? Yeah. The, the Nazis, the fascists don't gain power in France by elections. The Nazis conquer France. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when the Nazis take over, they needed to find a bunch of willing French, Frenchmen to run Vichy France. And they find a ton of these guys, yeah. a huge and already radicalized group of French fascists who are ready to chip in and help out. And most of these guys who run Vichy France when the Nazis take over are people who had been involved with the February 6th insurrection, Duh. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a ton of these yeah. fucking yeah, dudes. It's easy. Yeah. It's crazy that it's the six also. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Like and, it's, and it's that's the like, it's February sixth, yeah. right? Haunting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very haunting. Wild. Like I, when I started reading about this, I was so fucking shocked because I was thinking like, well, you know, if you want to make find a good comparison to the January sixth, there's aspects of the Munich coup, there's aspects yeah. of um of uh of the of the March on Rome, but like, oh shit, no, it's 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 Feb six, nineteen thirty four. That's exactly what happens. Yeah. Wild. Um. So. A lot of French fascists who had been a part of, you know, what happened on the 6th wind up joining the Nazis. Remember Philippe Henriot, the, the, or Henriot, whatever, the right-wing yeah. deputy who was basically the French QAnon Glock congressperson yeah. who was like, we need to overthrow the government while he's in the government. Yeah. Under occupation, this guy becomes the voice of Radio Vichy, broadcasting Nazi propaganda to millions of Frenchmen. Oh, Pierre man. Tattinger, who founded one of the first paramilitary leagues, became the president of the Paris Municipal Council under the Nazis. Jean Chiappa, the fascist cop was made high commissioner of the Levant, but thankfully died in a plane crash pretty soon after that when he shot uh, down over Lebanon by the say, Italians accidentally. Say, oh, good. Yeah. 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 Morris celebrated the Nazi victory as a divine surprise. Now, what? he was not a Nazi because he fucking hated German people, but he hated okay. Jewish people more. And one of his chief complaints <laughs> about the occupation is that it was too lenient on Jewish people. Oh when the God. Third Reich fell and France was liberated, Morris was arrested and indicted for complicity with the enemy based on the pro-Nazi articles he'd published at the start of the war. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. Upon his sentencing, Morris is said to have exclaimed, it's Dreyfus's revenge. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that was a, that he brought it all the way back. Uh, yes. it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect it's circle. Perfect. <laughs> oh, man. And somebody screenshotted his tweets and mm-hmm. put him in prison. Yeah, that's exactly what happens, more or less. Dang. And that prop is the story of February 6th, 1934 in Paris. All right. Wow. wow cool wow. shit, right? Or in Paris. Great times. Sheesh. Haunting. How's everybody is feeling? My, my one word, haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I like, in it's, yeah, because I didn't have, I didn't know much about this either. So when I was joining the chorus of everybody who's fascinated with history going, guys, I'm telling you, like this, we've seen this before. I don't know. I know there's no one to one, but we've seen something like this before. This one, I'm like, oh, this is the close. This is the closest to a, like you said in the beginning. I'm like, oh, damn, I wasn't even counting this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I, I knew, yeah. And it was it was some somebody sent me and I, I honestly forget who it was, but somebody like somebody who I have texted with on signal text. It said, like, you should look into January 6th, 1934. Yeah. And I did. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> this is the same thing. Uh, yeah. Dude, it's uh, so wild. So obviously it was a great, a great, you know, uh, yeah. episode for our the fascists who fail part of this. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of lessons to take out of this. One of this is that the right loses when the left and liberals work together electorally. Another yeah. is that when the left and liberals work together electorally, they generally can't agree on enough to do anything that will actually stop the fascists from getting stronger. Um, <laughs> that was one of my that was yeah. one of the biggest lessons I'm learning from yeah. this one. It's just like, oh, we're so progressive. We're so well, me and my wife call it, you're so open-minded, you're close-minded. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. like y'all just can't get it together because y'all not open minded enough, you know. Damn. Yeah, and it's you and know it, I think and it's something a, to be a said, lot could yeah. argue that it's largely on the radicals because they have more power in the government and they kind yeah. of refuse to do any sort of meaningful aid that could actually um, 
have have clamped down on the far right. But also, like, I don't want to, like, negate, number one, like, the media is a huge part of this, both in the United yeah. States and in France, right? This alternate yeah. media ecosystem yeah. kind of means that, like, maybe even if the radicals had agreed with the socialists and they'd put out an effective aid package, would that have been enough to overcome the propaganda? And I don't know. Nobody does. Nobody knows. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I forget the there's a modern historian, too. It's like we went from the information age to the age of belief, to the yeah. belief age. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we've actually yep. switched ages. It's not information, it's belief, you know? Yep. So like, and this media circus that we're all in of like, you know, the closed ecosystem of your of your confirmation bias means that information don't matter, belief do. So, but at the end of the day, like, like you said, like one could speculate, I just feel like anyone, anyone votes for somebody that puts food on a table. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like, it's about, like you said, yeah. If you put if 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 someone's not into the specificities of of caring for others, you know what I'm saying, like like the way that we think about government and the way that it processes, but just as simple as I need to be able to feed my kids, and mm-hmm. you're making this possible, you know what I'm saying, yep. in a time that like I can't just go get it myself, you know, then. Why would I not vote for this? You know what I'm saying. Why would I not back this? Like I, don't, you know, I. It cut me a check for two grand a month. I think it's great, you know? Yeah, and that's one of the things De La Rock and this Cross a Fire group, like they actually do provide aid to yeah. other struggling veterans. And that's a big part of their power and why they're able to all get together on stuff. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's it's there's a lot in these lessons. There's a lot in the stories of just like France and Spain, where like one of yeah. the things we see when you compare them to Germany and Italy is that when the police and the military are more on the side of at least the center and democracy yeah. than they are on the side of the right the right can't gain power through an insurrection, yeah. right? Yeah. In Germany and Italy, the police and the military are on the side of the fascists, and so the insurrections work, yeah. um, you know, eventually. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the Munich insurrection is stopped by the police and stuff. Yeah. And, like, the reason the Spanish Civil War becomes a war is because most of the military and most of the police in Spain don't go with the fascists. Yeah. In France, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, which is a lesson, I think. There's a I lot. I think it's of a great lesson. Yeah, confusing lessons in all of this. Yeah. Um, another is that regardless of what the far left does, the far right will turn them into everyone who is left of center. Right? They'll turn them um, into the boogeyman. Yeah. Yeah. And even if they us, don't do anything, yeah. they'll lie. It's like the kind of thing yeah. where you know liberals during the election were like, "Look at the." Um, like all, you know, these Antifa kids breaking all these windows are going to lose us the election to Donald Trump. And it's like, that's actually yeah. not what happened um, yeah. because the right are, were so propagandized that no matter what Antifa did, it wouldn't have, yeah. if they just marched peacefully in the streets, the propaganda would have, would have made them seem like the coming of a communist revolution. Yeah. Um, what matters is that liberals not buy into it and, and, sit, yeah. and, and, that's and what, work together. And that's what I feel you know? like we did. Where you were just like, hey, the defund the police would have lost his election. Look, man, don't shoot at us, dog. Like, yeah, you, you, yeah look. It did. Listen, you know, it didn't, <laughs> number one. You know what I'm saying? You like, and as much as we could, uh, unfortunately, it's like, well, Trump fumbling Corona, yeah. like, is like really a, yeah, a big what play won us in the this. election. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, like, don't look, man, same team, bro. I'm just trying to tell you this is a good idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's it, there's a lot, <sighs> lot to learn. And in it our really next is. episode, our penultimate episode of Behind the Insurrections, we're going to talk about the business plot. Um, so we're going to be coming back home to the old U.S. Old um, U.S. of A. 
yeah, that's going to be good. That'll be Thursday. Um, but for now, prop, you want to drop some pluggables up in this? Yes, yes, this, yes, because I'm so excited because mm-hmm. the pre-save link for my first single on the next record is now out. So Excellent. Prop at pop.com. Yes, and all my socials. Also, there's a new coffee roast called The Culture, also mm-hmm. available on the website, uh, pulled from Ethiopia, and like tasted it myself, met the farmers. This is real stuff. Uh, and I will be on Hood Pot. Dang. Anderson. Anderson, you want some coffee, dog? All you got to do is DM me, homie. Like, you ain't got to like yell like that. And I'm telling the truth. Like, you're you barking at me like I'm lying. Um, <laughs> And Hood Politics with Props, uh, uh, shooting out, doing, that's going cool. You could get on all the, all the, all the podcast sections and which was funny because like just now one of the uh, predictions, well, not just now, last week, one of the predictions came true. Uh, and we kind of did a little funny little roast about that. What the prediction of like the Proud Boys being infiltrated. Oh yeah. Yeah. I told y'all they was infiltrated guys. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's uh, one of the things that's frustrating to me about the Proud Boys is that like Enrique Terrio was a, an FBI informant. Um, yeah. And this is uh, being taken by a lot of the left to mean that like, well, the F, the, the Proud Boys were an FBI op from the beginning. And like, of course, not. that's not really how it like, it, it's this, no. it's this thing you see. It's the thing that J. Edgar Hoover wrote about where like one of his goals with COINTELPRO was to make the FBI seem so powerful and omnipresent that people would think they were responsible for everything. Yeah. Um, and it's less that and more that like Enrique Tario is the kind of person who is immediately going to roll on everybody that he was involved with. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that, 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 yeah, that like goes back to me, like in the left where I'm like, in the same way I'll be looking at like a lot of the right wing people and I'm like, yo, where's your antennas, man? Like discern this situation. You like, that's mm-hmm. not what's happening. You feel me? And I feel like with this one, that's one of those situations too, where I'm just like, yeah. bro, you, you take the whole thing as an FBI front. Like, like it's come on, man. Where no. are your antennas, bro? No, they got a guy but in. But of course a bunch of them were talking to the feds. Yeah, yeah they've got like, yeah. yeah. They saw it's, the same They saw the same problems we saw and uh-huh. they said, we better do something about this shit. You yeah. know what I'm saying? We yeah. don't want another gang that's we like- We don't want another gang, yeah. Yeah, we're the, we're the top gang, you know? Yes. Um, but it's Our whatever. Turf. Like yeah. people yeah, will right. believe what they believe. It's like yeah. with Epstein and with Stavitsky, you know? Yeah. You know, maybe he killed himself- Maybe he didn't, you know, maybe he, maybe he was murdered because he knew. And it's like, you know, fucking a with both Epstein and Stavitsky. You look at I the mean, response yeah. of the people in power to it. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty fucking sus. You know, yeah, you don't like, want his you do not want his passcode. Mm-hmm. You don't want that. If, like, if, mm-hmm. if, if that fool's phone got hacked, broken into all the text messages on that. Yeah, no, nah, yep. it's all bad. Yeah. And it, I mean, it comes back to the fact that one of the reasons why conspiratorial thinking can be so influential and spread so quick and be so hard to fight is that there's a fuckload of actual conspiracies happening all the time. That's the problem. You know, you know what I'm yeah. saying? It's the same thing with like, like we talk about the anti-vaxxer thing where it's like, it's yeah. not like the medical industry is helping. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, not it's not like all fucking Purdue Pharmaceuticals yes. reputation helps people trust vaccines you. and shit. You, you know? know what I'm saying? The Sackler family and shit like y'all crooks. Yeah. I know mm-hmm. you're crooks. That said, I don't know nobody that got polio. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? So That's yeah, good shit. Yeah. Anyway, it's 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 all great, and yeah. great. our next about. episode will be great too. Let's talk about how you it's know what else not is great. The history. 
Robert's Twitter so, feed. You can follow him at iWrite. Oh, I don't recommend that at all. Stay the um, fuck I, off of Twitter. I, I think it's great. And you've um, dropped some few gems recently. As a matter of fact, I was waiting to this one to talk about the uh to talk about the 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 trout bait shop. Oh yeah. Tweet. That was brilliant. I'm giving you what was it? Fuck around and what was it? What was the about the, the bait shop? What was it? It was fuck around and Oh, uh, find out. Yeah. Oh, f- oh, yeah. Fuck around and, and find, find trout. trout. Fuck around and yeah. find trout. I was like, let's go. I like to me. I was like, look, that's uh, you call that whatever you want. That's a brilliant. I think we could make a lot of money. That's yes. that's my that's my retirement plan is fuck around I, and find trout. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Let me tell you why. Because I went one time <laughs> in my life to. Uh, oh, we talked about this before when I ended up in Wyoming and Montana fly fishing just on the most the most random thing. I just got these friends in different places that allow me to do just white shit, right? But it don't have to be white shit. It don't have to be. Like, yep. what if I like fishing? What mm-hmm. if I think rainbow trout is beautiful? It's mm-hmm. just uncomfortable to walk into the trout store, the fish store, mm-hmm. and look around and just be like, oh, I look like I don't belong here. Like, you've made it mm-hmm. very clear that I should not be in this place. But if it's called fuck around and find trout, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. let's, let's shop yeah. there, bro. This it, fool cool. You it's, know what a, it's, a, it's a radical intersectional bait and tackle shop. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> rainbow trout's delicious. And rainbow, and rainbow trout, trout is, is listen. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm I'm like a I'm like a B minus pescatarian. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I basically eat fish, except I live in Boyle Heights, so the tacos are flawless. So yeah. I break rules for the tacos. But bro, fuck around and find trout. Let's go. Fuck around and find trout. I co-sign. That's y'all. Have y'all made this T-shirt yet? Mm-hmm. Oh no, no, we have not. But now that it's been in an episode, we can. Mm-hmm. It needs to be a T-shirt. And anyway. Anyways, that's that's the episode. That's Everybody the episode. Have, have a nice rest of your day. Yeah. Yeah. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. 
Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.